Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, if you would turn in them to Luke's Gospel, uh, and we'll be in chapter 18 this morning, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse uh, 1, Luke 18, uh, 1. So in uh, this week's text, we have two parables in verses 1 through 14 that are on the subject of prayer. And it's something that, that over the course of the weekend as we gather together on Friday and Saturday to talk about uh, walking uh, through uh, sorrow and the sadness that comes in, through life in a fallen world and where is God when we hurt, this is, this is something we've been talking about a good bit over the last few days. And it's been very reassuring to be reminded of what Paul says in, in Romans 8, that, that the Holy Spirit is, is at work and is making intercession for us uh, to the throne. And so as we consider these prayers and these parables about prayer, it is always really important for us to keep in mind that the, the content of our prayers is not the most significant element because we have the work of the Spirit who intercedes for us to the throne of God, but that we are persistent as we see here and that we are having the right posture and attitude. And those are the kinds of things that we're going to see in these two parables. The first parable focuses on the necessity of persistent prayer during times of trial. And it's going to draw the comparison between this unrighteous judge and the great, good, and righteous God whom the people of God serve and under whose reign the people of God live. In the second parable, Luke is going to present to us a story that Jesus tells his reader about the readers, about, or his hearers, Luke tells his readers about the proper attitude that's necessary in prayer. And the Pharisee demonstrates an attitude of arrogance almost as though he's thanking God that he's not like everyone else and in some ways implying God should be thankful that he has him on his team. The tax collector, however, prays in full realization that he is the chief of sinners, to use Paul's language. He begs God for mercy because he knows he has no reason, no right, no ability to come before God on his own. So let's read together, beginning in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. We've read this already, but I think it's really helpful for us to, to have this just sort of cycling through our mind as we consider this text this morning. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling. But later he said to himself, and notice by the way the audacity of this, that he's actually like articulating this reality that might be present, but we might not want to admit about the way we feel toward God and other people, but now he's just going to say it out loud. Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, 
Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is true, that it is trustworthy, and that, that you have given them to us so that we can know more of who you are, we can know more of the way that you are at work in the world, we can know more about what it is to live under the kingship of Jesus. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you would help us to, to grow in our knowledge, but then to be able to take that knowledge that we gain from your word, the knowledge that we gain about what Luke was trying to teach his audience, and then bring it to bear in our lives. That we would be, because of the work of your spirit, impressing the truth upon us, that we would be able to, to, to see the world through the lens of these two parables. That we would be able to look upon a world that is filled with injustice and rest in the fact that you are the God of justice. Lord, I pray that you would, would help us to recognize the tendencies in our own hearts to, by our actions or our words, to, uh, to give the sinful evidence that there are times when we don't regard Jesus is Lord, and we don't respect other people. And that you would confront us with that sinful heart so that we would repent and our fellowship with you would be restored. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we look uh, at our own responses to uh, injustice around us or what we perceived to be injustice around us where 
the wicked prosper. And we think, well, why not me? Why not? Why am I not receiving what I want? And, and realize that, that while we read this parable about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector and we, we come to the end and we see that the tax collector is justified that we would that we would not adopt the same arrogant attitude ironically of the Pharisee and say I thank you Lord that I'm not like that Pharisee Lord I pray that you would work and confront us with our sinfulness in productive ways that your spirit would bring real and lasting change in each of our lives. We pray this, we long for this, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So this, these two parables that we have here, back to back, are, are kind of constructed in a way that is very similar to really most all of Jesus' parables. And that is that he's telling the stories in order to draw people in and to get them kind of comfortable in the circumstance. And then at the end, he's going to sort of turn the tables. Uh, the way that one of my uh, seminary professors uh, described it is that, and I'm not really a fisherman of really any sort, honestly, but like a fisherman that puts his bait on the hook and he throws it out on the water and he starts sort of reeling it in. And so he's telling the story, and as he tells the story, he's, they're getting closer and closer. The fish are coming in, and they're, they're getting closer to the bait, and he's telling the story a little bit more, and they bite on the bait. And then, at the end, Jesus is going to set the hook, and they're caught. It's, it's a really effective way of teaching, because a lot of times, if we're hit head-on with something we don't want to hear, we're going to immediately, like, you know, bow our necks and stiffen our backs and not listen to what it is that's being said. And by telling a story like this, we get sort of drawn into the world that's created by the story. We get enthralled with it, and then we are caught. And let's just be honest, we like stories that, that are told that have, that have an ending that we never expected would come. You know, there are so many stories, like if you were to, to watch a, a movie, you, you can see oftentimes at the very beginning, well, I know exactly where this is going, and these are the things that are going to happen to cause everything to fall into place. But when there are movies or stories that we read that, that build and go in multiple directions, and, and you don't really know what's going to happen, and you come to the end and you're caught in this, wow, I did not know this was going to happen, those can become like cultural phenomena. They can, they can get this sort of viral spread where folks want to see this movie, hear this story, read this book that you might not ever have picked up aside from the fact that someone else has seen it, the story on the, on the screen or read the book and you're like, this is so amazing, this is so surprising, you need to read it. Well, that's what these two stories are like. They're confrontational, but they come at you from the side rather than head on. And by the time we realize that we've been hit, we're exposed for the hypocrites and sinners that we are.
So let's look at what happens there in verse 1. Luke uh, introduces this story, the first story of the persistent widow. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. And let's just be honest, on some level that's really helpful. This is a quite odd story and very blunt, frankly, in the way that Jesus tells it. But he wants us to to recognize that there is a necessity of persistence in prayer. There is something in all of us, to be perfectly honest, that is that there is an impatience in us that is unhealthy. And we feed it in our culture. We, we want what we want and we want it now. The idea of delayed gratification is, is alien to us. The idea of, of something taking place and only coming to completion or fulfillment in the the long run is something we don't like and we fight against and we wage war against it. We want what we want now and the fact of the matter is that's just part of the human fallen condition. We want to pursue what we want and anytime we pursue it outside of God's design it's going to lead to all kinds of disaster and in error and destruction in our lives, but there is this necessity that we see throughout the scriptures of persistence and patience that will result in God's will and God's way being accomplished in his time. And frankly, God's will and God's way are always accomplished. It's a matter of whether or not we're going to have to carry the shrapnel from the bad decisions along the way. I mean, think about even in the story of, of Abraham, when, when God calls Abraham, he's 75 years old, and he tells him to leave his family and go from where he is in the Ur of the Chaldees to this land that God's going to show him, and he's going to make his name great. He's going to give him a family, and he's 75 years old. His wife is 65 years old, and she can't have any children. And he says, you're going to be the one, the father of many nations, and the one through whom all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. And it's 25 years before Isaac is born. And there's a lot of impatience along the way that leads to a lot of family intrigue and brokenness and brokenness, frankly, that continues even till today because there is a lack of patience and trust in God's work and God's will and God's way that's in all of us. So here we're reminded of the necessity to pray persistently over and over and over and over again. So the story begins. And it's not, frankly, a very great start, at least for the woman, you would think. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And right away, if you, if you think about it, you imagine yourself in, uh, the, the, let's say, in, in this area, in and around the Sea of Galilee, where it was that Jesus was teaching, and, and you come to this circumstance where you have a judge, the judge who is expected to handle the law properly, to act rightly for the people, who right away, we're told, doesn't fear God or respect people. 
Now, in many ways, this should remind us of all of the issues that arise in the Old Testament with the fact that the, one of the reasons why God brings the judgment of the exile on the people is because their justice system is a wreck and the, the, the widows and the orphans are being neglected in the way that the law is being lived out amongst the people and the way that they're caring for one another as family. They're being exploited. The widow and the orphan are exploited because there are those who have wealth that are getting the preferential treatment in the court. So right away when we hear this and you have this sort of clear, blatant, straightforward rejection of the first command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then also a blatant rejection of the second command to love your neighbor as yourself, we ought to recognize this is not going anywhere really good. And it's indicative, I think, of, this, of, of the critique that Jesus is continually giving of the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it sort of point, pointed down into this singular judge. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in the town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary." So this judge is exactly the opposite of the command for a judge in the Old Testament. And now we have this woman who comes, this widow who is to be cared for and who is to be uh, one that the judges are protecting because in this culture, if you are a widow without children, you are alone, you are the least, and you are, you're going to barely survive. Think about how beautiful the picture is in the book of Acts after the Spirit comes and the church is established and launched. How at the beginning of the, this launch of the church there is this clear reality that the widows are going to be cared for. The widows are going to be provided for and there are not going to be needy in this true people of God that is now indwelt by the Spirit of God. They're going to care more about the people than they are about their possessions. And so we see here this sort of opposite picture, this widow who is to be cared for is being exploited and not cared for. And the judge is hearing her cry. He doesn't love God. He doesn't love his neighbor. And he doesn't care for this woman. So she keeps coming. It seems over and over and over and over and over again, give me justice against my adversary. She has no standing, she has no status, but this judge is to be the one to stand for her and provide for her the justice that she needs. And so the widow is persistent. Over and over and over again. We don't know what the injustice is, but it is significant, and the judge is not giving her justice. But notice what happens in verse 4. For while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself. And notice just the blatant rebellion in this statement. Even though I don't fear God or respect people, like there is no moral basis for what he's going to do. Yet because this widow keeps pestering me, 
Like she has just become such an aggravation. I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. The judge is in a difficult spot. Like he, in some ways, is kind of proud of his heartless reputation and maybe his reputation will be affected if he does the right thing. And in, a, in an odd way, as, as one commentator has explained, and I think rightly so, th- this guy is more afraid of the pestering of the woman than he fears God. And let's just be honest, we live in a culture where this word justice is thrown around a lot. That there are folks in, in every uh, sort of political realm, every spectrum, who are crying out for justice, 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 justice. But I wonder how much those cries for justice are like the cries you might hear from this unrighteous judge. They're cries for justice that have nothing to do with the justice that comes from God, who is the foundation of justice. They have very little care or, or, or interest in, in upholding the, the reality that God, who is the foundation of justice, has given people, every man, woman, boy, and girl, in every part of our globe, they have been made in the image of God. And as a result of that, they have worth and value and that they, well, they, they belong to God. They are made by God. And as a result, their, the lack of justice, God will avenge. You see, our justice that we want so often is very much focused on I want what I want for me and not what is right according to God's word. So notice what happens there in verse 6, the explanation of the parable. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. This is the way earthly justice oftentimes is handed out. I'll just give her justice so she'll stop bugging me. And let's just be honest, uh, you know, this is very much like what happens, maybe, I don't know if it happens in your house or not, but, but I have two children that like to come alongside and just yap, 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 yap. Dad, I want to do this. Dad, 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 dad. And eventually that persistence is just like, good grief, just if you'll stop talking, what do you want? I'm sure none of you have ever been there before. And that's, the, and that's a bad attitude. I probably should admit that. But at the end of the day, it is the way we often are. If you will just stop aggravating me, I will do, I, I, I'll do whatever you want. But notice the difference. And this is the point of the parable. Your God is not like that. The judge... He just is exasperated and is like, she'll just stop nagging me. I'll give her what she wants. But notice the difference with God. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? God is on the side of his people. And he is calling us 
to persistence in prayer. Persistence in praying for the, the, the unbelieving spouse. Persistence in praying for uh, the, the, the end of, of various types all throughout our culture and our country of injustice. Those things that are really up close to us and those things even at a distance that we pray and we pray and we know and trust that there is a just judge who will vindicate the suffering particularly here of his people, because there will be a day, and this is the thing he's going to bring out, will he delay helping them? Now, I'll be honest, I think a lot of us might say, well, it sure feels like it sometimes. It sure feels like that the justice that is guaranteed as a result of the fact that Jesus died in the place of sinners and that God raised him from the dead and that God has exalted him to his right hand from where he reigns and rules over all that takes place in this creation that God has made, it feels like at times that God's justice is delayed. But God's timing is not like our timing. And God's work is not like our work. And God's view of what is right and the timing for what is right being accomplished is not like ours. You know, you would think that if a 75-year-old man and a 65-year-old woman are going to have a child, they probably need to start getting to it. Times run out, frankly. It's very, frankly, unkind at times in the New Testament where they emphasize, yeah, Sarah and Abraham, they were old. In fact, Paul says that he was as good as dead. A hundred, and he was a hundred, she was 90 years old. But God always accomplishes his purposes. Always. So notice what he says there. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? No. I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. You can even think of like in, in Revelation 6 where you've got uh, in the, the breaking of the seals, you have those souls of the martyrs under the altar and they're saying, How long, O oh Lord, till you vindicate our suffering? The vindication is sure, but even as they are there in the presence of God, there is this desire for God to work and to vindicate their suffering. And he says, until the number that he has set aside who are going to die for the, the faith, their faith in Jesus Christ have been complete, then the end will come. God is at work. God is accomplishing his purposes and his justice will be accomplished. And so in the end, while we pray and while we strive, we can rest in the fact that we do not have to pursue justice by worldly means because God's justice will be vindicated in God's timing. There is no way that a Christian can make an ends justifies the means argument in any realm of life because God alone is the one who vindicates his people. And how often do we make those calculations in our mind? Well, I will make this compromise in this area to accomplish this good. It's not worth it ever. Because justice belongs to the Lord. And he will vindicate the suffering of his people. And he will accomplish his purposes. Because in the end, when Christ returns, all evil and injustice is going to be rectified. Which leads us to the second parable. He also told this parable to those who trusted in themselves. Doesn't that sound a lot like us? 
We would like to think that we're not those who trust in ourselves, but let's just think about how we've moved through this past week and how we've maybe displayed a lack of love for neighbor by this second part that they were righteous, let's just say we were righteous, and looked down on everyone else. This is where the the, 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 the frustration in some ways of the timing of God's justice plays itself out. God, why would you bless that person? Why would you give them what they want when I follow you more persistently? You see, it reveals an arrogance that we frankly don't like to admit but is always lurking at the door. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And here, there is an expectation. Well, the Pharisee is going to be the hero of the story. The tax collector is going to be the, the villain. And, and what happens here is that the person who, you know, proverbially wearing the white hat is actually wearing the black hat. And the one wearing the black hat is wearing the white hat. This, everything has been turned upside down. Because Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost, which we'll see in chapter 19. The Pharisee was standing and praying. Notice the posture and he was praying not to God, but to exalt himself. The Pharisee, just like the unjust judge, doesn't really love God, fear God, or frankly respect God's people. God, I thank you that I'm not like. This is a bad start to any prayer, frankly. So he, uh, I am not like other people. I'm not greedy, I'm not unrighteous, I'm not adulterous, or even like this tax collector, like, oh, I've got someone right here that I can point out that I'm better than. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I get, and let's just be honest, as we read this, we can probably, I think we're probably moving toward the side of the tax collector, but I wonder how often, if we really examine our hearts, we pray just like the Pharisee. It's in us all this sense of justice that really is tilted in our favor. We put our own finger on the scales for ourselves. But notice the posture of the tax collector. Standing far off, he would not even raise his eyes to heaven. Now think about where, like they went up to the temple to pray, and, and even in that, like this tax collector who is working for the Romans, he's a, he is a, He's betrayed his people. I mean, no one ever, let's just be honest, really enjoys uh, the tax collector coming along, not in any culture. And particularly if you think about the fact that the Romans at this particular time didn't get taxed and the only people that got taxed were all the conquered folk. Like, this is not something that's going to make people happy. And when there were taxes that were going to be collected, uh, there were usually rebellions. Like, this is, this is a guy who is hated. We're going to see another guy like this in chapter 19. He is hated. He is the lowest of the low, partly because he's made some wealth off of the people that are oppressing them. Talk about injustice. He is a picture of the injustice. And he's there praying. So if he's at the temple, he's really not going to be welcomed into the court of the Jews. He's not going to be welcomed into the court of the men. He's going to be on the periphery of the temple praying because he can't get too close because he's unclean. 
And somehow in the telling of the story, this Pharisee sort of sees him even as he's able to get to the inner areas of the temple because the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the more holy you are. And he sees this guy off at a distance and he's like, I'm not like that dude. I can come here. I can pray this way. God should be glad that he has me on his team. But the tax collector gets it. This is the big surprise in this parable. He wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it means to love God. I am a sinner, and I know it. He's begging God to hear. He's begging God to to listen. He wants to know God. And then Jesus concludes with this punch in the gut to the audience where the world has been turned upside down and we see what's going to be displayed in chapter 19 that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost on full display. I tell you, this one, the tax collector, went down from the temple to his house justified. This man, begging God to have mercy on me as sinner, he leaves the temple right before God. Not the Pharisee who believes himself to be righteous, the tax collector, the last person in the world that you would expect to even be, frankly, have the audacity to show his face at the temple, the sign of their injustice, goes to the temple, begs God for mercy, and he's the one that leaves right before God. He's the one that leaves in relationship with God. He's the one who is going to be vindicated before God on the last day, not the Pharisee. So you can kind of understand why these Pharisees and tax collectors and all of the rulers of Israel kind of hate Jesus' guts because he's calling them out and he's doing it in this sideways fashion and they want to put him to death. We get to the end of this chapter, he's going to explain that one more time to the disciples. They're going to kill me. But God will vindicate my suffering as well. God will raise me from the dead. So this morning, I, I just, as we come to this uh, time of gathering together at the Lord's table, I want us to take just a moment to, to, to just pause. And just, just close our eyes and try to block out who's to your right or to your left. And ask the Lord to to reveal to us the ways in which over the course of this morning or this weekend or the last week or ever how long the Lord deems it right that he would bring to our mind with his convicting love 
those ways in which we have shown a disregard for God and for his people. Where our attitudes have been ones of condescension and pride rather than the proper humility that should be displayed by a person who's been made right before God through the work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that that as you bring those uh, occurrences to mind that you would help us to to stop our attempts at rationalizing our sin. That you would expose our self-justifications for what we did in arrogance and in pride. And that we would repent. That if there are folks uh, in this uh, in this body whom we have disregarded that we would go to them and, and seek their forgiveness so that that as we gather we would gather united that we would gather in right fellowship with you and with each other. So let's just take a moment in the quiet to do business with God and then we will move forward and approach the table together. Father, you are the righteous judge. Your character is the foundation of justice. And you are the sovereign king. whose perfect justice will be executed. Lord, I pray that this morning each of us would would approach you seeking mercy grace we need that far more than justice Lord I pray that this this posture of 
of seeking your mercy, recognizing that we are sinners daily, moment by moment, needing abundant grace and abundant mercy. That we would be able, as we go throughout the rest of our time gathered together and throughout our week, that we would be able to walk in the humility that is rightly demonstrated by people who have been saved by grace through faith. And that in all of our interactions and in all of the things that we do this week, that we would first recognize fear and love you as the one who declares what justice is and is the foundation of justice and that we would regard the folks with whom we interact on a daily basis as people made in the image of God that we would not mock them that we would not demean them that we would treat them even if they are rebelling against your clear command that we would treat them with the mercy and the grace that we have received and that we would treat them as people made in the image of God so that we can demonstrate by our words and our deeds that Jesus is better than anything that the world offers as a path to life and fulfillment. And so, Lord, as we gather at the table, I pray that you would work in us, that you would unite us as a body, that we would be uh, praying for one another, caring for one another in real and tangible ways, and that we would see and understand that the Lord Jesus is with us, that he would be revealed as Luke describes it in this breaking of the bread. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if the